0: Everlast is the young adult ministry of Calvary Worship Center, located in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Everlast is a place where young adults can come encounter Jesus, grow in Jesus, and make Jesus known. What's going on, everybody? How you guys doing tonight? Yeah, good, good, good. Happy Tuesday! It's good to see you all. Uh, just out of curiosity, if this is your first time here, would you let us know just by raising your hand high in the air? Awesome. Welcome. Well, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Stuart McPherson. I lead out in this ministry that we call Everlast, and, uh, and we're just super excited that you're here. Look. Tina, myself, and the other leaders that lead out in this ministry, what we hope that you experience when you walk in through this door, through these doors, multiple doors, right? What we hope that you experience is a place where you feel like you belong long before you believe anything that many of us in this room believe in, which is Jesus. We pray and hope that you feel safe here, that no matter what your story reads, how it reads, no matter what your past looks like, that your story is safe here. Uh, because this is what we truly believe. We believe that every person that you lock eyes with and bump elbows with matters to God. And so all of you matter to us as well. So we just hope that we've created a welcoming environment for you in this place, a place where you feel safe. So that being said, uh, why don't you go ahead and let's start off this night by turning to your neighbor, giving them a solid high five, and saying, hey, I'm glad you're here. That is some good high-fiving going on. Well, if you, uh, if you got your Bibles with you, let me go ahead and encourage you to open them up or power them on to John, the book of John, chapter 4, John chapter 4, and then once you get there, go ahead and just hang out there for a little bit, but John chapter 4 is going to be our main text for this evening. And uh, before we go any further, I think that we should go ahead and pray, yeah? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you that you have brought us here tonight, God. We are fully expecting to hear um, just a good word from you. God, this evening, as always, as every Tuesday night is, God is completely dedicated to you. So God, we just pray that you would teach us at least one good thing about you, this evening, and God, how that applies to our lives, how we live that out. So, Father, we love you, we thank you, and we lift this all up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by show of hands, how many of you have ever been embarrassed? Oh, good, there's a few of you. I was like, man, like nobody's going to raise their hand because nobody wants to admit that they've ever been embarrassed before. But if you're anything like me, getting embarrassed happens pretty often. In fact, there are many times where I'll say something, and as soon as the words leave my mouth, I'm like, well, that was stupid. Why would I say something like that? I don't know, Stuart, why would you? Like that, like that's an embarrassing moment. Now you guys just found out that I talk to myself. But, but every so often we have these embarrassing moments. And sometimes I'll say something to embarrass somebody else, right? Like I'll sit there and I'll say something that's gonna make somebody feel really uncomfortable. Why? I don't know, I just do. Uh, but I'll give a prime, prime example of this. Uh, anytime that I get the opportunity to introduce my wife to somebody, I, I give her a certain char- like characteristics and I call her a certain name. So, for example, I've been invited to speak at a couple of different churches, and I always sit there and say, hey, my name's Drew McPherson, and with me is my smoking hot wife, Melissa. She's the one that you'll usually see with me. She's a smoking hot blonde, and, uh, and I'm sure she hates it right? Like, it's always embarrassing. Nobody wants that kind of attention put on them. But I always do. I always sit there and go, this is my smoking hot wife, Melissa. She's the blonde sitting right over here. <laughs> the one who is now embarrassed because all this attention that she didn't want is now on her. I do those kinds of things. But we do hate getting embarrassed, right? Uh, sometimes we do things that we know is going to embarrassing, be embarrassing, and then we do it anyways. Prime example. I'll share a story with you about, uh, sorry about Melissa and myself. Uh, some of you have heard this before, but uh, I actually proposed to Melissa on our very first date. Weird, right? <laughs> I know. Like, like there's like those types of stories. Tina and I were talking about earlier today, you know like when you're watching a movie or a show or something, like it could be a reality show, and all of a sudden somebody says something or does something, and then you feel embarrassed for them, like you're like, ooh, that's cringeworthy. Like this is that story, okay? So hear me out. So I grew up with this mentor who basically told me and my best friend Eric, he says, Stu, if you ever have the opportunity to go out with a girl that, you know, you, you always open up the door for the girl. We're like, yeah, yeah, we know. He goes, but when you go out on a date with a girl, if you were to open up the car door for her and you walk around behind your car and you just so happen to notice that this girl reaches across the car uh, to open up your door, no questions asked, you marry her right then and there, or you propose to her right then and there. You don't continue on with the date. So I'm like, okay, well, like that's ever gonna happen. Well, Melissa decided to go on a date with me. Why? I don't know, but she did. So I walk her out to the car. I open the door for her. I close the door behind her. I walk around behind my 2000 Honda Civic. And as I'm looking through the back window, what I am noticing is that this smoking hot girl that's way too good for me is leaning across the car, and she opens up the door for me. So I get into the car and I'm hearing my mentor's voice in the back of my head, you gotta propose to her. And I'm sitting there like, shoot, this is gonna happen. Okay. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the driver's seat and I look over at her and I go, hey, I, okay, I gotta do this thing. Um, and it's really weird, but would you marry me? Awkward, right? Like girls, Think about that being you. You haven't got. you don't know anything about this dude. It's the very first date. You'd be like, uh, I'm out, right? So what do you think she said? Yeah, she said no. So I kicked her out of the car and the day ended. No, 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 I'm just kidding. We we continued on with the day because she knew I was paying, so, yeah. (laughs) Everything obviously worked out well. She said no, but she eventually said yes, we have a kiss, she stuck with me, that's how it goes. <laughs> but, I'm sure that moment was embarrassing for her as much as it was embarrassing for me. I followed through, I was true to my word, but here's the thing. While we hate being embarrassed, the, re- the reality is that we do live in time that we do love to have the attention on us, Right? Like, we love being the spotlight or the center of attention for good reasons. This is the reason why social media today is so popular, because it provides a platform for us to put our best foot forward in front of people. So all those thousands of selfies that you take, you can choose the one that makes you look good. You can put a filter on it if you want to, and then you can send it out there. That way, everybody can like the image and tell you how good you look right? And then you get like this nice little dopamine hit because you open up your social media and you notice, hey, I have a whole bunch of likes and a whole bunch of hearts. And you're like, man, I'm feeling really good about myself. And I'm just talking about the guys that are flexing in the mirror after they work out the gym. Like, that's who I'm talking about right now. But we don't like being embarrassed for bad reasons right? We hate it when we're being laughed at. We hate it when, like, our best foot is not put forward. You know, you take that selfie, you post up the picture, and then you realize that you have, like, the spinach in your teeth, and you can't remember the last time you ate spinach, like, two days ago, maybe? You're like, well, that's really embarrassing. But we hate it when, all of a sudden, those embarrassing stories come back up days, weeks, months, years later. And while we can sit there and laugh it off, we still hate the fact that we have been embarrassed in any kind of way. But I'm willing to bet that as much as we hate being embarrassed, there's one thing that we hate all the more. You see, while you can go on a date with a guy or a girl and propose to them on the very first one and laugh it off because it's embarrassing later, the one thing that we hate feeling the most is feeling shame. We hate being ashamed of something that we did, said, or something's been done to us. Brenea Brown, well, let me define shame for you. Shame has three definitions. The first one is shame is a painful emotion caused by uh, consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. A second definition is a condition of humiliating disgrace or disrepute. And the third one is something to be regretted. Now, Brene Brown, uh, she is a communicator, a professional speaker, and she spoke on this idea of when people listen to shame, that was her topic. And she says that there's a difference between guilt and shame. She says that guilt is somebody that says, hey, I did something bad. I I feel bad because I did something. Whereas shame, on the other hand, says, I didn't just do something bad. I am bad. She continues on to say that in order for shame to exist and survive in a person's life, it needs three things, secrecy, silence, and judgment. So if you missed last week, we launched into this new year with this brand new series called Encounter, where we're looking at stories in the Bible where Jesus had an encounter with people and their lives were interrupted and changed forever. Now in today's encounter that we're going to be looking at in John chapter 4, we're going to encounter somebody who is living a life full of shame. So we pick up the story in verse 3 and this is what it says. He, being Jesus, left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, let me give you a little bit of backstory of what's going on here. So last week when we kicked off this series, we asked the question, hey, what are some words that come to mind when you hear the name Jesus? And the reality is that we could go on and on for days talking about just the different words that come to mind that we associate with the name Jesus. Jesus. However, one word that we looked at in particular that we wouldn't normally associate with the name Jesus was this word scandalous, because that's not usually a word that we would put to Jesus' name, and the reason being because our culture today associates scandalous behavior with something bad, right? But what we saw with Jesus, scandalous Jesus, is not necessarily all scandalous behavior is bad, but for Jesus' time, him being scandalous, it was in a way bad, but to the to the Jews, the people of the religious moral system and law system that they had then. Jesus was scandalous during his time. And in our text, what we're seeing here is scandalous Jesus in action once again, because the text says that he had to travel through Samaria. (gasps) Scandalous. Let me explain. You see, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus shares this story about this guy who is traveling down a certain road, and he gets beat up, and he gets robbed. And he's left on the side of the road for dead. And in Jesus' story, three people come passing by. One was a priest, another one was a Levite, and another one was a Samaritan. Now, in Jesus' story, as this is happening, while all three guys are passing by, only one comes to the aid of the injured man, the Samaritan. So, Jesus is basically sharing this story to ask the simple question, of the three people, which one is more of a neighbor to the injured man? Now, the answer to the question is simple. We simply know that the one who showed mercy, the Samaritan, is the answer to that question. But keep in mind that the audience that Jesus is speaking to is primarily Jewish. So the guy that Jesus asked this question to responds with, well, the one that showed mercy. He's not wrong, right? The guy that showed mercy is the one who's being more of a neighbor. However, his response shows us just exactly how much Jewish people hated Samaritans because he wasn't willing to acknowledge that it was a Samaritan who was the one that showed mercy. He wasn't willing to say it was a Samaritan uh, to answer Jesus' question because then that would imply and accurately say that the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Here's where... Here's the big deal. Here's why Jewish uh, people hated Samaritans back in those days. In the Old Testament, we read stories where Israel is divided into two different kingdoms. You have Israel to the north, and you had Judea to the south. In 721 BC, the empire of Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom. What they did was they took some of the Israelite people from there, and they shipped them back to Assyria. But the ones who stayed behind intermarried with the Assyrian Empire, with the people from Assyria, creating this half-breed culture between Jew and Gentile. So to the pure Jewish blood people, these Samaritans are now half-breed, unclean people. They hate them. So when we read in the text that it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, there's actually a lot more going on there and I'll explain. Because we have a, what I thought was a pretty famous saying in our culture today, so I'm going to say it, and I, if you were willing to play along, let's see if you guys can finish it for me. The fastest way to get from point A to point B is a straight line. See, some of you, you got this. I'm proud of you. In those cultures, I got a map up here, actually. In ancient Israel, this is how everything was laid out. You had Judea down here, And it says that in the text that Jesus is going from Judea, point A, to Galilee, point B. Because Jews hated Samaritans so much, and you would notice that Samaria is right smack dab between them, right over here is the Jericho River. What they would do, or sorry, uh, Jordan River. What they would do, what Jews would do is they would, if they were having to go to Galilee, they would cross over the Jordan River and go around to get to Galilee bypassing Samaria completely because they didn't want to have any interaction with the Samaritans. So if Jesus is using Google Maps today, yeah, to get from point A to point B, it is a straight shot. He had to go through Samaria. But for him to having to go through, that is scandalous action. This isn't typical behavior. But Jesus had to go through Samaria, and we're going to see why in the encounter that he has. Because the woman that he encounters in Samaria, in Saqqar, at this well, this is our character in our text today that's living a life of shame. And how do we know this? Well, the text told us that when Jesus was worn out from his travels, he came to the well and it was about noon. Now, that again is not typical behavior typically the practice would be that the women would go out to the well either in the cool of the morning or the cool at night. It doesn't make sense to go out in midday during the hottest part. So without really telling us, the text is simply saying, hey, this woman, man, she's avoiding people. But why? Well, as the story continues on, this interaction that Jesus is having with this woman, we end up finding out that she has been married to five different guys. Now, What happened with these guys? Why five different guys? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But as we're hearing this interaction between Jesus and this woman go on, we can kind of get the sense that I don't think all five of her previous husbands died. I think that she's been divorced. I think she's been married five different times, and five different times these guys have left her high and dry. But while she's already probably living in some kind of shame that she's been divorced so many times, We also get this idea that, man, there's a little bit more going on here. And we get this because Jesus, fully aware of her story, then lets out her dirty little secret. He says, look, I'm fully aware that you've been married five times, but you're also living with a guy right now that's not even your husband. So place yourself in her sandals. You've been married five different times. We don't know. We'll just assume that she's been divorced. And now we've been made aware that, man, the person that you're living with, man, this guy doesn't even love you enough to get married to you, be committed to you. Do you think that she's living with a little bit of shame? Do you imagine being in her shoes and knowing that everybody in your town knows your story? Man, if I was her that that would lead me to wanting to live a life of seclusion i wouldn't want to be around other people and having interactions with other people because i wouldn't want to have to have those conversations with people i wouldn't want to have to hear them sit there and say to me hey so uh, what husband are we on to this time hey how is that living situation going with the guy that doesn't even love you enough to get married to you oh you're you're probably not going to get You probably don't want to get married to him because all the other ones have left you anyways. What we see with her story in a short, short glimpse is exactly what Brene Brown says that is needed for shame to survive in somebody's life. Secrecy, she's going to the well at noon. Silence, she doesn't want to talk about it with anybody, and judgment from the town around. This woman is living a life of shame. And this is exactly what sin does, right? Sin, Satan loves to use this idea of sin and, and the strategy of it to get us trapped. Because what Satan does is he uses sin, the things that we do, and he simply says, man, <laughs> this isn't just something that you're struggling with. This is something of who you are. He takes the thing that we're struggling with, and he uses it as an identity statement that he places over us. So this woman that we're getting introduced to, the Samaritan woman, what we're learning about her really quickly is that she, she doesn't just think that she's somebody who has done something bad or is doing something bad. She believes she is bad. Satan is winning the strategy. And for some of us in this room, he's, he's, his battle plan is winning against you. You see, because what Satan is doing is he's sitting there going, man, you're not a, you don't struggle with porn. You're just a porn addict. He's sitting there saying, man, see, you don't struggle with drugs and alcohol. You're just addicted to those things, and it's how it's going to be. It runs in your family. He's saying that, man, you don't have an anger problem. You don't struggle with anger. You're just a hateful person. He's sitting there saying, you don't struggle with building authentic friendships and building relationships with people. Just nobody likes you. He takes the things that we struggle with, and he places them as the identity statement on us. And that leads us to live in a life full of shame. We don't want people thinking this of us, so we seclude ourselves from other people. Now, I hate the feeling of shame, right? Like, I can live with embarrassment. I can laugh off the embarrassing moments with other people. Haha, <laughs> that's funny. But the way that shame makes me feel, that tears me apart inside. Because the way that shame makes me feel is it makes me feel guilty, it makes me feel embarrassed, and everything in between all wrapped up in one package with a pretty bow. I hate the way that I feel when I feel shame. C.G. Uh, C. Young says this, he says, shame is a soul-eating emotion. Many, if not all of us, have felt shame at some point in time in our lives. In fact, for some of you, that's exactly how your story reads. You encountered Jesus when you were at the lowest of low point, feeling shame for the things that you were doing, the things that you were caught up in. Others of you in this room, right now, you're actually concealing something that you are ashamed of, fearful that the people around you, the people that you call friends, would find out about the thing that you're doing, Because you're afraid that they would either judge you, criticize you, or they would run away from you and no longer be your friend. We put on these masks and we seclude ourselves from people, uh, concealing our true identity because we're just so fearful that people would be scared of the things that we struggle with. But it shouldn't be like that here at the church, right? We talked about this last week. Here at the church is where it should be okay to not be okay. Here at the church is where it's supposed to be that, hey, no perfect people are allowed because there are no perfect people. Yet one of the leading causes for people leaving the church or never walking in through the doors of the church is because the world believes that the church is too judgmental against other people. That's mind-blowing to me. How is it that the organization that is supposed to be the representation of Jesus to the lost and broken world, the hands and feet, the church that is supposed to be known for loving God and loving people could be known as being the most judgmental group of people. I don't get it. But if I were to be completely honest with you guys, me too. I have sat in that foyer on weekends and sat there and watched people walk in, and I have let my mind just run wild going, what are they doing here? They're like, man, I'm, I'm glad I don't look like that. I don't know their story. Who am I to judge? It, That's exactly the reason why most people are not walking in through the doors of the church anymore, because the church is supposed to be a place where we do life together, and yet many people that call themselves Christians, that walk through the frames, the door frames of the church, they actually feel more alone than they feel like they're doing life with other people. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, Melissa and I, we don't get the opportunity to go on very many dates anymore since we had Micah. We, we date each other every single week. We try to make it a priority. We call them states, stay dates. So we stay at home, and we just spend time with each other. As soon as Micah goes down to sleep, we put on a movie. We either order out something or we cook something, but we, we try to be intentional about dating each other. But a couple of weeks ago, we had some friends that were willing to watch Micah for us so we could actually go out and enjoy each other. So we went and we saw uh, the new Star Wars movie early Saturday morning, And if you haven't seen the new Star Wars movie, let me encourage you to go see it. I think it's the best one of the whole franchise. I really do. But, all right, you know, whatever. But there's a line within the movie, and if you haven't seen it yet, don't worry. This line's not going to give anything away. But there's a line in the movie, uh, a conversation that's going on between two characters. And one of the characters says this. She says, they win by making us think that we're alone. And as Melissa and I are sitting there watching this movie, immediately, I'm sitting there hearing that, and I'm like, well, if that's not the most accurate statement I've ever heard about what Satan's strategy is against the Christians. Satan wins by making us think that we're alone. You see, we put a smile on Satan's face when we sit there and we hear about somebody else's struggle, and we sit there and go, well, man, at least mine's not as bad as theirs. We put a smile on Satan's face when we turn the church to be more divisive against each other and more judgmental against each other rather than welcoming. We put a smile on God's face, on the other hand, when we sit there and we acknowledge that somebody's hurting just like we are. And we're willing to wrap our arms around each other and say, me too. Because you see, no matter what name your struggle has, the real problem is that we all share the same common struggle. It's called sin. Sin is the common problem that we all share. It's the reason why we struggle with things because we have a sin problem. Not one person's sin is any worse than anybody else's. So where we come off thinking that we have the right to judge somebody else for their addiction problem or their you know whatever else, it's not our place. Because no matter what your struggle's name is, the overall problem is still the fact that it's sin. S-I-N-E, that is the big problem. Brene Brown continues on in her talk on on, uh, shame, and she says that empathy is the antidote to shame. You want to know how to fix that? You want to know how to fix shame? Have empathy for one another. Now my question is, do you know the difference between sympathy and empathy? And if not... I'll share it with you. Sympathy is saying, uh, sympathy is feeling of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. Man, I'm sorry you're going through that. Empathy, on the other hand, is the ability to understand and share the feelings with somebody else. You see, when we don't, when we sit there and we judge and criticize one person's sin versus the other, man, we can sympathize when, when they're struggling, when they're hurting. But when we understand that sin is just sin, and we can we fill that with each other. Me too. And here's the good news of the gospel. The good news is that we have a God who not only just sympathizes with us, but he empathizes as well. Because we see that in the story with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus is fully aware uh, of everything that's going on in this woman's life. He is fully aware that she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. He's fully aware that she's a female and he's a male. But yet, fully aware of everything that's going on in her life, fully aware of how her story reads, fully aware of the shame and the guilt that she is feeling, the text still tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to stop at that well. Jesus had to have that encounter with that woman because only Jesus can make the difference in the life that she was desperately in need of. The truth is that we are not alone because we all struggle with the same thing and that struggle being sin, we get the opportunity to do this life with each other. While Satan would love to seclude us and place a new identity onto us based off of the struggles that we have, the reality is that when we do this life together, when we're actually being the church, we're no longer shaming people for the things that, we, that they're struggling with, but we help introduce them to the person that saves people, which is Jesus, man, that's how we put the biggest smile on Jesus' face, and that's how we become the hands and feet and the organization that Jesus has called us to be. Towards the end of Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul shares, uh, gives us a little bit of insight of his own struggle that he's facing. Paul says, you know, the things that I know that I should be doing, I don't do those things. And then he continues on to say, and the things that I shouldn't be doing, those are the things that I constantly find myself doing. And Paul says that this is the result of sin in our life. The Bible says that this is the struggle between flesh and the spirit. But I love the way that he opens up the very next chapter. In Romans 8, verse 1, he says this, and we have it up on the screen for you. He says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You guys, there's no shame with Jesus. He knows the struggles with sin that you're facing. He knows how your story reads. He knows the messiness of your life, the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt, everything that you're feeling, and yet he loves you anyways. Knowing that we're all a jacked up mess, Jesus had to leave his throne in heaven so he can have an encounter with you because he alone was the only person that can make the difference in your life that you're in the desperate need of because God so loved the world. When we're free from guilt and shame, it becomes easier for us to tell our circle of influence the freedom that we have found, what we have been freed from because we know the significance of the thing that we have been freed from. We know that when we don't have to live under shame and guilt anymore, man, there's, so, there's such a release of burden off of our shoulders in those moments. So if you really want to have an impact, like a lasting impact on the world around you and on your friends, and you just tell them, there is a God and his name is Jesus, And with Jesus, man, he knows everything that you're dealing with. He knows your shame, your guilt. He knows your messiness. And he still desperately desires to have a relationship with you because he's not ashamed of you. You really want to have that impact on people. You really want to change the world. You let them know that there is no shame with Christ Jesus. So here's your homework assignment if you choose to accept it. It's two action steps. The first one is this. Ask God to remind you this week that you are never alone. I am mean, to look around in this room. I know what we all have in common. We're all jacked up, including this guy up here. But the second thing is this. Ask that you would be reminded that God reminds you that with him there is no shame. We have a God who is for us and not against us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on any new content. If you are a young adult in the Colorado Springs area, be sure to check out Everlast on Wednesday nights from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at 501 Castle Road, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80904. For more information, please visit our website at cwccs.org. God bless.